It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created stocks with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but there's no need to be in your own head. Beat it up and I repeat, got no sleep, the ladder, put the platter with the fear, fight down, like fire in the fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury, it down your neck. Even the reporter got the jump, get the crowd, with that low plane, find them. Up for overflow, five minutes, the corner, too, but it'll be the secret, devil, spirit, devil, world, in your own need. your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan, might, right, might, feel it in Swedish life. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! That's right. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a minute of morality in an immoral world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger with a calling, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. And that is an amazing mission. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I am also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. She's the hostess with the mostest, tougher than nails, and lovely as lace. That's right. <laughs> Together we are the watchers on the wall. And we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Wouldn't that be terrible? It would be awful. That's right. Hey, have you been injured in an accident with a nasty newt? Well, our attorney says don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Right, that's common sense, and we'll be talking about common sense later on in the show. But you know what? We are here to help you. If there is no help coming, we are there. So what's the gist, survivalist? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Have recommendations or suggestions for topics for our show. Comments. Anything you'd like to tell us. That's right. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast. That's Dr. Bones Podcast at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. You can follow us on Twitter at, at 
Prepper Show. Uh-huh. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy and our very interactive and fun video cast. Live. Live mm-hmm. for you to listen, chat, ask questions, make comments. Anything you want. And Again, maybe, suggestions. Maybe win some prizes. Yeah, and that is at aroundthecabin.com. Wow, that is a lot of places oh, to connect with well, us, Let's buddy. tell them when it is. It's the first oh, right. and third Wednesday of every month. Again, it's live, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Very good. Thank you. Hey, in the news, let's see what do we have here. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, two more. Lots of news. <laughs> two more. All right. Two more deaths were reported Monday in the Legionnaires' disease outbreak in New York City, and that brings a total to 12 out of 113 total cases. The outbreak has been traced to Legionella bacteria in water-cooled towers in the South Bronx. Legionnaires' disease was first seen, by the way. It, why is it called Legionnaires' disease? Because it was found in members of the American Legion that were attending a a conference in Philadelphia in 1976. I remember that. I remember it in the news also, which is sad. I totally remember that. Because it means we're old folks. (laughs) That's right. Well, I was kind of little, but... (laughs) You you were just a baby, but I was... Not not a baby, but... (laughs) I was well into my 60s then. No. If you were into your 60s, you wouldn't be here anymore. 100,000 years old. Now, well, uh, the outbreak was linked to air conditioning cooling towers in the Bellevue Stratford Hotel there, and it sickened 221 people with 34 deaths all within the span of about a week. Uh, The elderly, smokers, and those with respiratory conditions are most vulnerable to the potentially deadly bacteria. Experts expect more cases because the incubation period, the time between getting the infection and getting symptoms, is about 10 to 14 days. Now, although hospitals routinely test their water for Legionnaire's disease, Interestingly, hotel, apartment buildings, and offices are not required to test for it. Now that's which is where it came from. Which was a hotel. is right, right. It, originally and now mm. it comes from an apartment building. So uh, right. apparently, that is probably a law that should be enacted, and that's uh, for safety. For just for Absolutely. safety purposes. Absolutely, public safety. Fortunately, Legionnaires' disease cannot be spread person to person. It's airborne. You inhale it directly into your lungs. So. The important thing is to maintain your climate control units properly. Make sure that the air you breathe is safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, years ago, I wrote an article about the truth relating to expiration dates on medications. Lately, I've seen some confusing information on the subject on the interweb <laughs> that tells you how dangerous they are while telling you at the same time that you might consider using them. So I think it's time to set the record straight with regards to expiration dates on meds. Before I start, I want to tell you that my focus is medical preparedness for major disasters and long-term survival. That means a strategy of putting together stockpiles of supplies, medical supplies, Mm -hmm. that might save a life in times of trouble. Now, in normal times, when you can just call your doctor for a fresh prescription... Great! Sounds awesome! Seek modern care by qualified professionals, if at all possible. My goodness, that is common sense. Here's, Here's what you need to know. Expiration dates for first made mandatories. Some drugs had them before, but they were first made mandatory in the U.S. in 1979. They are the last day that a drug company will guarantee 100% potency of their medication. These medicines do not, in most circumstances, become toxic after the expiration date. You will not grow a horn in the middle of your forehead if you take a pill the week after it expires. Take my word for it. Yes, and it actually makes perfect 
logical sense. Is there any big pharma company, anyone who manufactures pills or medications that you think would want to have a medication that days or weeks or even years after it expires that it's suddenly going to kill people? That's right. Tetracycline is now in a different formulation. and There really hasn't been any recent reports of such a tragedy occurring. Exactly. And we're talking about death here. Obviously, there's always side effects. There's risks. People have you know, problems with kidneys from too much. They have problems with, with liver toxicity. I mean, there are side effects. We're talking about death. Also, you have to remember that there are some people that shouldn't be taking certain medications or some medications where if your kidneys aren't functioning correctly it's dangerous to take, take them it. because they pass through the kidneys if kidneys don't function then you develop a excessive amount of it in your system right but these are the exact same precautions and side effect as if it was a fresh medication it doesn't change your worries and your side effects will still be the same with that medication weeks or years after it has expired. Let's talk about potency of the medicine. Now, in most cases, drugs that are in pill or powder or capsule form, they're going to be 100% potent for years after their expiration dates, 100% effective. Now, how do I know this? Well, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the Department of Defense stockpile millions of doses of medications used in emergency settings. Well, in the past, when those drugs expired, out came the forklifts, and they were discarded. Now, as you can imagine, this gets to be pretty expensive, so they commissioned a study called the Shelf Life Extension Program, something I first wrote about actually many years ago, and this program found that most medications, as long as they are in pill or capsule form, were still effective after their expiration dates, Right, and oftentimes for years. Exactly, and let's just be clear, the medications we are discussing are pill and capsule form, not liquid. That's a whole different ball game. Exactly. If you're talking about, let's say, uh, antibiotic elixir or that you insulin. put together for kids or insulin, they do go lose their potency relatively quickly. Absolutely. Those failed that study, but the other ones were successful. And this is something that I think is very important. You know, as a matter of fact, a study of a number of drugs found in their original packaging in a storage area at a San Diego pharmacy and expired for more than two decades, 28 years, were found to be 100% potent. 12 out of the 14 active ingredients were 100% potent when they were evaluated in a study uh, done in 2012 and published in the Archives of Internal Medicine, a very prestigious and accepted medical journal. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the two failures I just want to say was aspirin. Mm -hmm. So that was that was indeed was a failure. Well, that's pretty obvious. If anyone smelled old aspirin, and I have now, a I have a bottle has of has like an ammonia smell. Yeah, or to like it, a vinegar. It? Yeah, vinegar. It smells smell, like right. a vinegar. But guess yeah. what? It's good for. It's good to keep your flowers fresh. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. So I put it in the kitchen where we keep, uh -huh. we keep uh, uh, our foil and our plastic wrap. So it's completely out of the reach of any medications you take at 2 o'clock in the morning with a bad headache. And we use it and dissolve it in water to keep the flowers fresh. So anyhow, 12 out of 14, <laughs> that, is, that is actually very useful, except in survival situations where Just I don't, don't think anybody is going to be giving anybody else flowers. <laughs> now, the interesting thing was is that this was without knowledge of whatever conditions these drugs were stored in for 28 years or more. Probably they were in an area where 
was abandoned perhaps. I mean, I can't imagine somebody not passing by a part of that pharmacy for 28 years, right? Right. So it... it and we think it might not have electricity, which is unusual because that's one of the things that helps shelf life is a good temperature, a steady, air-conditioned environment. Right. Well, anyhow, all this information put to, uh, by this shelf life extension program and this new evidence that came out uh, <clears throat> afterwards basically led to the extension of expiration dates for certain drugs as needed, mm -hmm. such as the five-year uh, extension that was given to the antiviral drug Tamiflu during the 2009 swine flu epidemic. Also, other antibiotics like doxycycline have also received uh, similar extensions when they were needed. I think Cipro uh, was 10 years Could have past extensions. So there are a number of so the number of other uh, antibiotics and other medicines that have been given extensions. Now, despite this, you'll see quotes in some of these articles that you'll see online, uh, often from academic types, that medications are dangerous when expired and they should be tossed. Now these opinions are fine for normal times, but if you're watching this show, or if you're listening to this show, you're probably a member of the preparedness community, or at least you're interested in the subject. You might even be the person that might be medically responsible in situations where the rescue helicopter is heading in the other direction. Well, if that's the case, good. You're exactly who I want to talk to. You may one day have to make a decision in a true disaster setting about whether or not to use an expired medication. Let's use some common sense. Let's say a loved one is fading from an infection. Something bad has happened and you're off the grid with little or no hope to getting of getting to modern medical care. Mm -hmm. You have an expired bottle of antibiotics. What yeah, are you like going... This? Yeah, like that. Bottle. A bottle of antibiotics. There you go. <laughs> we have one right here. Even... I, so, this is the situation. Someone you love is dying. What are you going to do? Are you going to use the expired drug or not? Absolutely. Exactly absolutely 100 percent now of course medicine should be stored in cool dry dark conditions their potency does fade twice as fast if they're stored at 90 degrees than if they're stored at 50 degrees absolutely and it's just the same kind of recommendations that we have for saving our food when you get long-term food like freeze-dried foods you need to store them exactly the same way so they keep Keep them exactly the same way as you're storing your food. Don't throw them out in the garage. It gets to be 100 degrees. Don't throw them in the back seat or the trunk of your car. Don't put them in a cabin that gets really, really hot. So, or really, really, really cold because, you know, freezing extremes, them, right. freezing them is, rare, the right, is rarely helpful as a method of uh, preserving these kinds of medicines. Now, even if they're stored in suboptimal conditions, a capsule or tablet that hasn't changed color or consistency is probably still worth keeping for austere settings. Now, sometimes in a true disaster, and this is where the common sense part comes in, mm -hmm. the issues that will be facing the medically responsible are going to be very basic. What is the problem? Do I have medicine that will treat it? Could this medicine, although it may be expired, possibly save a life? When it comes down to it, can you really choose to not use it because some professor said that there are possibly side effects due to it or possibly it might not be as strong i say in a true survival situation do not withhold a drug because some professor said it wasn't a good idea to use it 
Use common sense when you think about what you would or wouldn't do to keep your family healthy in a disaster. Believe me, these guys weren't seriously considering a time when an expired medicine might be the only option you have left. Let's hope it never gets to that point and that you'll always be able to call your doctor for a fresh prescription. However, preparing for the worst while hoping for the best is not a bad strategy to deal with the uncertain future. All right, let's take a, a minute just to get a little housekeeping out of the way before our next topic. The question that I have for you is, are you ready to deal with medical issues in times of trouble? If you aren't sure, we'll get a copy of our Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook. You will get a head start in any disaster epidemic with a bunch of important tips that will help you keep your family healthy. And you know what? We wrote the book in plain English. Imagine that. No Chinese in there whatsoever. So put old Dr. Bones and the lovely Nurse Amy in your survival library. Head over to Amazon.com or get a personally autographed copy sent to you by going to our website at doomandbloom.net. And for those of you who have kept our book on the most wished-for list on Amazon, but maybe the book was a little too pricey, this week the shorter, less expensive, abbreviated version of our book published by Skyhorse Publishing, they titled it The Ultimate Survival Medicine Guide, is now available so you can get it there for a little less and still get a lot of great information you know summer's in full swing and we're on the road again and we were just in the great white north well pretty south far south in the great white north <laughs> pretty much niagara falls ontario right uh next to buffalo new york and we were at the survival expo and we met a lot of prepared canadians and we had a great time there and I'm hoping that we'll get a lot of more interest in Canada with regards to preparedness. There are all sorts of things that can happen there, mostly winter-related, I would think. There and, are a lot of people interested in preparedness. Right. And people are a little concerned about what direction the world is heading. And so I think that it's not a bad idea to get some people, some Canadians, medically prepared. And so we went up there. We had a great time there. That's we right. saw a beautiful... Niagara Falls, oh, so Canada, and, so and, pretty. <laughs> and wow, really pretty. And anytime there's a a little bit of sunlight, there's a rainbow oh. overlying it. I mean, it, it's just an incredible thing. But we are not done traveling yet. As a matter of fact, we are going to be heading out next weekend. We'll be in Denver, Colorado. Absolutely. And that will be... Sept excuse me, September. <laughs> I'm pushing the time a little bit. August 22nd, the Saturday. Actually, next Saturday, 2015, depending on when you're listening to this. We will be there. It's an all-day event. I'm pretty sure it's from 9 a.m. till 7 p.m. And at 4 o'clock, we'll be holding our special wound care suturing and stapling class. Oh, yeah. That's always a lot of fun. So if you're in the area... In beautiful Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Please sign up for our class. I you will enjoy it. You'll get a, a number of instruments and sutures Gifts. to take with you, as well as being tested by the <laughs> tough Doctor Bones to see if your wound closure will meet my stringent standards. We're also going to be giving a free DVD to each one of our class right? mates. Exactly. Yep. And they will get the Wound Care Suture Stapling DVD. So every slide that you see during the class, you will take home with you. That's right. So you can refer to it. You'll also get uh, two videos of our using the exact instruments that you'll be taking home with you to close a wound uh, by suturing and also by stapling. So 
and it's going to be, I think, a great, a great class. I hope uh, we you'll... love Denver. Yes, and I hope I hope you'll come to see us. We're doing a free lecture as well there. So and the free lecture is Saturday. And that's on Sat. It's all all on Saturday. Oh, that's right. We're still <laughs> so, talking about South Carolina so Expo. So one day I started comes. thinking about Lawrenceville. <laughs> yes, it is. It is Saturday that you will be listening to the lecture. All right. And also, the next place we go pretty much within days is the following weekend. We're going to drive up this time to Lawrenceville, Georgia. Near at, Atlanta. Yep. Just at the, let's see, it's the northeast corner of Atlanta. That is August 29th and 30th. And those hours are 9 to 6 Saturday and 9 to 4 on Sunday. Sounds great. Sunday is the suture class if you guys would like to come out and you live near Atlanta or you want to drive there. And that will be at 10 o'clock. Check the medical classes page on doomandbloom.net so you can get signed up as soon as possible. Class is filling up. Before we go to the next topic, I just want to thank everybody for their kind words and support for our mission, which is to put a medically prepared person in every family. And thank you for checking out our books, DVDs, and our entire line of medical kits and supplies. Supplies at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. By the way, Nurse Amy has gone a little off her rocker and has (laughs) offered free shipping on anything in the store to anywhere in the U.S., for a limited for time how, only. For how long? Up till uh, September 14th, right? Yes. Until September 14th. And then maybe never again. <laughs> right. We'll see. Tending, we'll, it's an expensive it's proposition. A one, Some Sometimes it's yes. like 50 bucks to... More than you know, that. The, the flat rate shipping for the uh, family bag is $50. And that's the ch- cheapest shipping I can find. And if I have to ship it further than Texas... It is much more expensive, and I've had to ship that to Alaska. Crazy, So, baby. it is an awesome deal, guys. Store.doomandbloom.net. Short time, limited time. This is August, what's today? The 15th, 15th to 15th, September 14th. 2015. So, if you're listening to this next year or next month, I'm sorry. You blew it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, is... Still great stuff in the store, though, and and reasonable shipping prices. I, I stick to what I have to pay. Also, is there help on the way for drought-ravaged Southern California? Well, the waters of the eastern Pacific Ocean are heating up, scientists say, building towards a strong El Nino effect that could rival the intensity of the record 1997 event that wreaked weather-related havoc across the globe with heavy rains that caused mudslides in California, but opposite events like droughts and wildfires in Australia. Now, according to the latest forecast released by NOAA, uh, this year's El Nino is significant and strengthening. There's a greater than 90% chance that El Nino will continue through the Northern Hemisphere winter and 85% chance it'll last all the way into early spring. El Nino, if you don't know, is a warming of the eastern Pacific Ocean. Mainly, it happens along the equator. These warmer waters are normally confined to the western Pacific by winds that blow from east to west. That pushes the warmer water towards places like Australia and Indonesia. But during an El Nino, Mm -hmm. the winds slow down and sometimes reverse direction, allowing the warmer water to go all the way in the other direction, not Australia, but South America. And El Ninos do occur relatively regularly, every two to seven years in various intensities, but they can heat up the waters of the Pacific Ocean, the mid-Pacific Ocean, up to seven degrees Fahrenheit, 
warmer. So that's pretty amazing. Now they believe that the El Nino 2015 might be the strongest year on record. Okay, so what does El Nino do? Well, a strong El Nino heats up the atmosphere and changes circulation patterns around the globe, especially the jet stream over the Pacific, which becomes stronger and dumps more frequent and intense rainstorms over the western U.S., especially California. Now, more rain in North and South America comes at the expense of the normally rainy Southern Asia and Australia areas, that become abnormally dry. They experience droughts, wildfires, something they can't afford, especially in Australia, since they've had a drought already in the land down under. Uh, it also influences cyclone or hurricane seasons. The warmer the Pacific Ocean gets, the more hurricanes it gets. Uh, on the other hand, the Atlantic Ocean sees fewer hurricanes, though less hurricanes, like perhaps like Hurricane Katrina. Now, the prospect of a record-breaking El Nino is worrying everyone. The 1997 edition created... Con conditions that killed an estimated 23,000 people and caused $45 billion in damage. And that was due to torrential rain, mudslides, uncontrollable forest fires and, and on the other side in Asia. Uh, disaster areas were uh, called in 35 counties in California after mudslides occurred there. Man, it is a problem. It was even blamed for virus outbreaks in Africa and rising coffee prices around the globe. So that is pretty amazing. So the question is, will parched California be brought out of the drought by the storms that El Nino will bring this winter, even if it is at the expense of our Australian friends? Well, it'll help, but the drought is so bad that many weather forecasters don't think it'll be enough to undo the damage. By the way, El Nino, if you don't know any Spanish, means the little boy. But in this case, it's named after a very special boy, the Christ Child. El Nino events often occur during the winter, during Christmas time or early January, and hence the name. Okay, well, moving right along here, let's see what I got here. Oh, spider bites. You know, it's summer, and certainly this is the time that you're going to see a lot of spiders in, certainly in milder climates. Although we have them all over, all over, all the time. All mm -hmm. spiders all the time <laughs> yes. are down here. That's true. Now, although large spiders such as tarantulas can cause painful bites, most spider bites don't even break the skin. Now, in temperate climates, there are two spiders that are especially to be feared, especially in the U.S., and that is the black widow and the brown recluse. Mm -hmm. Now, the black widow is about a half an inch long. It's active mostly at night. Now, they're found throughout North America, but are most common in the southern and western areas of the U.S. Now, you can identify them by the, because they have a pattern of red coloration, sometimes like an hourglass, sometimes not, on the underside of their abdomen. Now, that occurs in the U.S., but interestingly enough, there are all sorts of other black widows. You'll find them in, in a number of continents, and they some of them look crazy different. <laughs> some of them are like polka-dotted and... It's amazing. I've seen all of these um, while I was doing my research on this, and I, I thought that was pretty interesting that they don't always have that red hourglass. Now, these spiders are usually found in workplaces containing undisturbed areas like wood piles or under eaves, fences, other areas where debris accumulates because people haven't been fiddling with that area. But they may also be found in places... Uh, like outdoor toilets, places where insects might be, as you can imagine, quite plentiful. 
Now, black widow spiders build webs between objects, and bites usually occur when humans come into direct contact with the webs. A bite from a black widow can be distinguished from other insect bites by two puncture marks that it makes in the skin. The venom of the black widow is a neurotoxin, a uh, substance that damages nerves, and it produces pain at the bite area and then spreads to the chest, the abdomen, or the entire body, really. Although its bite has very potent venom, venom that, that is damaging to the nervous system, the effects on each individual, however, are quite variable. Some people don't get much of an effect. Some people get very sick. Now, severe pain at the uh, site of the injury is usually the first symptom that you'll see very soon after the bite. But following this, you could actually see a number of symptoms like muscle cramps, abdominal pain, weakness, shakiness, nausea, vomiting, fainting, chest pain. Wow, difficulty breathing, disorientation. Boy, that person is a mess if they have all of those. I I'll think they you, are. I'll tell you that much. Uh, each person will get a subset of these symptoms. They'll get some. They might not get others. They'll get variable degrees of, of the different uh, signs and symptoms. Now, the very young, the very elderly, they're more, ser more seriously affected than most people. Now, when you examine them, you can expect to see rises in their heart rate. Their blood pressure will be high. This is a big issue. Now, compare this to the brown recluse spider. Uh, the brown recluse spider is, well, uh, brown, and it has legs that are about an inch long. So it has a very small body and longer legs. But unlike most spiders, it only has six eyes instead of eight. Not that you're going to be able to see it because it's so tiny. Victims of brown recluse bites report them usually as being painless, at least at first. But then they start experiencing itching in the area. Sometimes the pain becomes severe. They may develop fever. They may also have nausea and vomiting like the black widow uh, spider bites. Uh, and they develop blisters in the area. Now, the venom of the black rec of the brown recluse is thought to be more potent than a rattlesnake's, although much less is injected into the bite itself. Substances in the venom start disrupting the soft tissue around the bite, which leads to local breakdown of skin, fat, blood vessels, and forms what we call necrosis. In other words, damage due to death of tissues that surround the bite. And areas that are affected actually can be pretty extensive. It can, it can actually, actually spread somewhat. As a result, the human body activates its immune system, right? This is what it happens, what happens as soon as it experiences a bite. And what happens is the toxins can make the immune system go haywire. And your own immune system then destroys red blood cells, can destroy your kidney function, and can destroy the ability of blood to clot properly. Mm -hmm. These effects can lead to very serious life-threatening conditions, sometimes coma, sometimes even death. Almost all deaths, I will say, from brown recluse bites have been recorded in children. I have a question. When someone has just been bitten, do they feel it? Do they feel when they're getting bitten? They feel the black, I would think they feel the black widow's bites, but they don't feel the brown recluse bite sometimes. Uh -huh. So the brown recluse bite has been reported as being painless at first, Okay. although people then started Then afterwards, like right, right. Because I know some bites, you don't feel them right. right away. It's almost like they inject a little bit of lidocaine in there right. while they're biting you. So they can continue to bite you so you don't no notice and get rid of them and, and swat them right. away like or kill and, them. Like ticks and mosquitoes and yeah. things so like that. Pain and then, you know, a few minutes later, you're like, oh my gosh, what bit me? Ah! There's some spider bites that are very painful to, uh, to get. And uh, a tarantula, I guess, would be one of mm -hmm. those. I think I mentioned that earlier.
Now, uh, treatment for spider bites should include washing the area of the bite very thoroughly with soap and water, put ice to painful swollen areas, use pain medications such as uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, things like that, uh, enforce bed rest and elevate and immobilize the bitten extremity. Don't I don't want them to move it around too much to get more of that toxin into the circulation. Now, warm baths for those that have muscle cramps for black widow bites only, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, would be helpful. But stay away from applying heat to an area that has a brown recluse bite that causes a speeding up of the death of the tissues. Um, antibiotics are sometimes used to prevent secondary bacterial infections that occur as a result of the bite. And there's a controversial home remedy. Rubbing tobacco juice into the wound was done in the 1800s, and I suppose you could still do that today and see if that helps you. Now, if you can find, if you can find a spider, it's always good to have it for evaluation by medical professionals in normal times or by the group medic in survival times. Now, suction devices uh, like the Sawyer extractor are generally ineffective in removing spider venom from wounds. Tourniquets also a bad idea. Uh, there are antidotes, of course, called antivenins. Uh, we've discussed this before when we talked about snake bite, mm-hmm. and they exist, and they may be life-saving for venomous spider uh, bites, but these are going to be scarce in the aftermath of a major disaster. Now, in most cases that are not severe, they'll subside over the course of a few days, keep that person on bed rest, but the sickest persons in a survival setting, well, they're going to be nearly untreatable without the antivenom. Of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure here's what you can do to decrease your chance of a spider bite first inspect or shake out any clothing shoes towels or equipment before you use them especially if they have been outside now wear protective clothing such as a long sleeve shirt long pants hat gloves boots when handling stacked or undisturbed piles of materials eventually most likely there are things that have decided to make their home there right now, minimize the empty spaces between stack materials so that spiders don't have a place to build a web from one place to another, right? Mm-hmm. Remove reduced debris and rubble from around your outdoor work areas. Trim, eliminate tall grasses from around those areas. Uh, store your apparel and your outdoor equipment in tightly closed plastic bags. That would be a good idea, a great idea, as a matter of fact. And, of course, keep your tetanus... For many reasons. Right. (laughs) They also recommend keeping your tetanus boosters up to date. Once every 10 years is fine. And uh, that's interesting because spider bites can also pass tetanus spores to you. So you can actually get tetanus from a spider bite. So I think that's enough about spider bites. But there is something like a spider that will also give you a... Not a bite, but a sting, and that is a scorpion. Now, most scorpions are harmless. That's right. They're harmless, nasty looking, but they're harmless. Harmless. In the U.S., there's only one scorpion that's really dangerous, and that's the bark scorpion of the southwest desert. It's got toxins that can cause very severe symptoms. Uh, There are, however, scorpions in many other parts of the world that are very lethal. Now, some scorpions can reach several, several inches long in length, They have eight legs, a pincers, like a little lobster, and a tail with which they inject venom. Now, the nervous system in a scorpion bite is what is most affected, and children, again, are most at risk again. Now, symptoms you might see in people that have scorpion stings Mm -hmm. might be 
pain, numbness, or tingling in the area of the sting, uh, sweating, weakness. They have a tendency to put out a lot of saliva, which is sort of interesting, so they might be dribbling. Um, they'll be restless, they'll be twitchy, irritable. They may have difficulty swallowing. They'll be breathing rapidly. They'll have a rapid pulse rate. Now, when you diagnose a scorpion sting, the important thing to do is very simple. Wash the area with soap and water and apply cold compresses to decrease pain. Now, if you do that quickly, that'll help slow the spread of the venom. And the other important things are keep your patient calm. That also will decrease the spread of the venom into the circulation. If the throat is swollen, don't feed them. Just limit throat, food intake. And give these people pain relievers. Uh, Tylenol is fine, acetaminophen, uh, even ibuprofen is fine in this case. But avoid narcotics because they can suppress breathing in someone whose breathing may already become suppressed. Mm -hmm. So that is something that you would do for scorpion stings. And also, again, they are probably more often seen in the summer, but they're, the bark scorpion is really something just for the desert southwest, and you won't see it really pretty much anywhere else other than that. Uh, you could go to Africa and you go to Asia, you'll find some pretty nasty scorpions in in those areas, but it's not something that you would otherwise see a lot of here. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with the lovely nurse Amy and Daddy. that old, old not so old Dr. Bones. Not so old. <laughs> well, Dr. Bones has been having some heartburn lately and I don't know whether it's because my heart is on fire with love for <laughs> Nurse Amy. I so don't know. What you're saying is your heart is burning. My heart is burning well, for so Nurse Amy. Well, so is mine. Oh. I'm getting heartburn too. Well, <laughs> so I thought we talk. Why I'm coughing now. <laughs> well, I thought we talk about that and see what natural remedies might Yay. be useful. So let's do that. Well, awesome sauce. Well, heartburn is you know definitely punishment. Believe me, <laughs> but it's not over. It was clear why you have been punished. Some people say it's because you eat too much. Some people say because you eat too fast. Other people like to uh, blame spicy foods, uh, acidic foods, maybe like grapefruits mm -hmm. or, or orange juice or Tomato tomatoes, tomatoes, big, right? Yes. And things like that. But what actually causes heartburn? What causes that burning sensation? Well, when stomach acid backs up into your esophagus, the tube that goes from your throat to your stomach, you feel a burning pain. Because that area shouldn't be ordinarily terribly acidic. So what causes this acid to back up from your stomach all the way up to your throat? You've got a trap door of muscular tissue that's called the lower esophageal sphincter. It's all the way at the bottom, right at the entrance to the stomach. And it usually keeps stomach acid where it belongs. But with heartburn, it allows acid to sort of leak upward, which is a problem known as reflux. Large meals, as well as certain foods, can lead to heartburn. So some of this is actually true. Now, you're more likely to have heartburn if you are overweight, if you're a smoker, if you're pregnant, or if you have a condition called a hiatal hernia. I'm a who? Maybe I have that. And in which you have a weakness of that sphincter over time in which uh, it just doesn't close as well as it used to. So that's certainly something that may also be an issue. Now, there are some medications that are commonly used for this. 
but there are medications that make it worse too. I mean, the medications used for this, you'll probably see Zantac, you'll see Pepsin, other medicines, but there are medicines that you use that can make it worse. Things like aspirin, certain antibiotics, some antidepressants, some sedatives, they may make heartburn worse. So here we're going to have Nurse Amy talk to us a little bit about some of the natural remedies that you can use uh, either in normal times or in a survival setting to help with heartburn. So here are some ways that you can help ease the pain of heartburn and maybe prevent it. As soon as you feel the telltale flicker of heartburn, drink eight ounces of water immediately. What you're trying to do is wash all that acid back down into the stomach, which is where it belongs. Now, alternatively, and I personally have tried this, is to take one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. Now, buy the apple cider vinegar that actually comes in glass containers, not plastic, because it can leach from the plastic some toxins. Try to just get the apple cider vinegar that is in the glass containers, one tablespoon of that. Take that if you can straight. If you can't, mix that in just a little bit of water until you can tolerate it. Then you're gonna chase that apple cider vinegar down with a glass of water. What you're trying to do is actually get more acid into your stomach. I know this sounds like, what? I've got acid, I wanna reduce it. I know most people try Tums and Mylanta, they take Zantac, uh, Pepsid AC, all of these acid suppressors or acid neutralizers. But what you're doing in the end by constantly taking these types of things, you're actually inhibiting the digestive process. Now think about it. Why do you have acid in your stomach? because you have to break the food down. It's the first place, well actually your mouth starts breaking foods down with your uh, saliva, but the second step is in your stomach. And the acid is necessary so that you can get the nutrients out of the food you just ate. If you don't get the nutrients out of the food you just ate, your body is not being fed what it needs. And so a lot of people have issues with malnutrition because they're constantly taking acid reducers. Okay, stay with me here. So, you want to get that acid back where it belongs. You don't want it in your esophagus. That hurts. And when it gets up in your mouth, I don't know if you've ever woken up with this, but your teeth might hurt. You have this weird taste in your mouth, like on your tongue. And you wake up and you're like... What the heck is that? Well, guess what? That's stomach acid that's leaked up into your mouth. Now, that is bad. You're going to need to go to a doctor, if you can now, and see what they can do about that. Before you go immediately to the doctor, you may want to try the apple cider vinegar. En enhance your digestion. Don't inhibit it. Make it work better. So try the apple cider vinegar. Another thing you might consider is there's an imbalance of bacteria in your intestinal tract <clears throat> and in your stomach. What happens is if you keep neutralizing the acid, some 
bad stuff can grow. The bad guys, if you don't have a defense perimeter, the bad guys come in. And your defense perimeter for your stomach is your acid. Keeps the bad guys out. So now you've got low acid. Now you've got bad bacteria. If anyone's heard of H. pylori, that is a bacterial infection. And it can cause ulcers. But before it causes ulcers, it may cause symptoms of heartburn. So don't get rid of your acid. Try apple cider vinegar. What you also want to do to help combat this possible bad bacteria, you want to fight them, is you want to take in good bacteria. So start eating things like yogurt. Drink this liquid that seems like a mixture of milk and yogurt called kefir or kefir. <laughs> it's K-E-F-I-R. It is fantastic. You'll find it in the organic section of your grocery store or in Whole Foods. You want to start off with a half a cup every day. Uh, probably in the morning is good. You want to increase fermented foods. You want to have good bacteria in there. If your stomach and your intestines are balanced and healthy, you're going to have less issues with heartburn. Now I know Dr. Bones talked a little bit about some medications that may cause heartburn, but I'm going to tell you one that he didn't mention, and that is blood pressure medicine. If you are having issues with heartburn, and it happened around the time that you started taking blood pressure medicine, you need to see your doctor. You need to call them or you need to get in there and you need to tell them, when I started taking this medicine, I have had horrible problems with heartburn. I can't take it. Change. There are so many different blood pressure medicines out there. In addition to that, try to lose weight <clears throat> and try to eat healthier. Try to watch out for your salt intake so that you don't have to take the blood pressure medicine. Now, there are some people that have high blood pressure. It's genetic. And they're skinny as can be and healthy as a horse. And they exercise and they do all the right things. And they don't have too much salt in their diet. Although now they're saying that heart, or excuse me, high blood pressure may be uh, more related to sugar intake than salt. That's very interesting. We're going to keep an eye out on that. So um, try some dietary changes, some exercise changes to lose weight. If you don't have to take the blood pressure medicine, then you're not going to have to deal with side effects of it. But if you have to take it, there's no choice. Try something different. Try something different until you have le the least amount of side effects possible. Hopefully none. Hopefully you can take it, be healthy, while you're getting yourself on a weight loss program, on an exercise program, and eating healthier. So getting back to balancing, these are some things you can do to balance the bacteria. Hopefully not end up with a heartburn, but if you do have it, eat, or excuse me, drink lots of water. Drink the apple cider vinegar. Help your body digest the food. The quicker that food moves out of your stomach, guess what? The less chance it's going to go back the other way. You need to get rid of it. Some other things just to make you feel better you can use a heartburn easing tea. Add one teaspoon of freshly grated ginger root to one cup of boiling water. Steep that for 10 minutes and drink. It is 
helpful to decrease the nausea caused by not only heartburn but by motion sickness. Ginger helps relax the muscles in the walls of the esophagus so that the stomach acid isn't shoved up into your stomach and into your throat. So it eases the pain and it helps the physical activity of what's actually causing the heartburn. You can make a tea from caraway or fennel seeds to help ease the heartburn. Uh, take two teaspoons of any of them to one cup of boiling water and seat for 10 minutes. Strain that and you can drink it. You can also um, add some cinnamon or cardamom uh, to help cool the heart, the heat of heartburn. And actually, I'm growing cardamom outside. It's a beautiful plant. It, it really looks a lot like ginger, but it has a, a wonderful smell just when you get near it. Um, so add one teaspoon of either crushed uh, powdered herb, either one of those, to one cup of boiling water, uh, steep and strain and drink. Um, put a protective coat inside your throat and your esophagus. And one of the oldest remedies is marshmallow root. It produces a type of a gooey, starchy substance which coats and protects the mucous membranes of your esophagus, um, which sounds wonderful when you have heartburn. But again, try that apple cider vinegar chased with a glass of water first. I'm always going to go back to that. <laughs> keep, keep the digestion moving along. For the powdered marshmallow root, you can stir one table, excuse me, one teaspoon uh, into one cup of water and sip it. And you can drink that three to four cups per day. You can also make a, another soothing drink from Slippery Elm. Add one teaspoon of the powder to a cup of hot water and drink a few cups through the day. Uh, licorice is known to provide that coating also in your throat. So take two or three uh, chewable wafers of licorice, licorice three times daily on an empty stomach. Now there are suggestions for neutralizing your stomach acid. And again, it's that whole line of antacids. What does antacid means? It's ant, anti-acid. It's neutralizing, stopping, decreasing the acid. You, you can take those if your apple cider vinegar, your healthy diet, your, your medicines aren't working. And I'll give you some other suggestions to help prevent heartburn. One thing you do hear a lot is baking soda. Baking soda is alkaline. So what's it going to do? It's going to neutralize the stomach acid. You can try it if you want. Make sure you never use baking soda, which would be a half teaspoon and um, a half a cup of water, warm water. Make sure you never do that without some lemon juice because the baking soda may cause gas and the um, lemon juice actually helps to um, dispel some of the gas that the baking soda creates. You can try juices of carrots, cucumbers, rashes, or beets. Again, helps to tame the acid uh, due to their alkaline nature. You can also put a pinch of salt and pepper to flavor them. Uh, power of prevention. Always stay upright. Uh, gravity is 
a nice force when you're trying to keep that food and acid from coming up into your esophagus and your throat. Uh, bending over after a meal is not a great idea and definitely do not lie flat. If nighttime heartburn plagues you, eat your meals at least three hours, at least three hours before you're laying down. The added time is going to help uh, give that food a chance to digest and move out of the stomach. And then your stomach can calm down and it's not going to try and push some acid up into your stomach and your throat. We do this. We sleep with our head elevated. With We use four or five pillows behind us. When you're tilted up, again, gravity helps the acid stay in the stomach. You can also, if you have to flip, flip to your left side. Um, that's where the stomach hangs down and it helps to um, pull the the acid and the, the stomach contents away from where your esophagus is. Uh, eat smaller, more frequent meals. This will decrease the amount of acid that your stomach has to produce to digest. Think about it. It doesn't have to overwork so much. Also, avoid eating too much in one sitting. Uh, you have a, a thick ring of muscle that separates the stomach from the esophagus. That is what loosens up. If you don't have too much food in it, it won't stretch. It won't open up. It'll allow you to digest the food. If you haven't done so, give up cigarettes. Uh, that also relaxes that muscle that separates the stomach from the esophagus. Decrease or eliminate uh, beer, wine, especially red wine, um, milk. Some people have issues with milk. Uh, coffee, tea, and cola also relax that muscle. Uh, chocolate has a lot of heartburn triggers. Soda, think about it, way too much acid. Now you're adding way too much acid to your stomach, and that might also um, cause the, the muscle to relax, and that's what caffeine does. Fried fatty foods sit in the stomach for a whole long time. Tomatoes and citrus fruits and juices. You're adding more acid than you, you may be able to handle. So watch out for those things. Look for your triggers. See what happens to you. Every person is different. So put yourself in a good healthy state. Good bacteria. Good exercise. Hopefully you won't have to take any medicines that may increase your risk of heartburn. And I wish you all the best health. Thank you for listening. This has been the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Stay tuned next week for more topics and more issues. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. See you guys later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.